According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Let's uh, return once again to uh, Matthew chapter 27. We are in Matthew 27, Mark 15, Luke 23, and John 19. Because the crucifixion event itself is covered in all four Gospels. So we've got quite a bit of back and forth. We want to read about the repentant thief. We're going to be in Luke 23. We want to read about some of the different things. Uh, the entrusting of uh, Mary to John's care. Well, we're going to get that from the Gospel of John. We combine all four Gospel records to get the total picture for what happens on the cross. question was asked a moment ago before we got started. Uh, where do those numbers come from? The 35, the 36, the 37, and the 38. Those are event numbers that uh, we've been using in our Harmony of the Gospels. And uh, if you don't have a copy of this, we, uh, you can either get it off the website or uh, uh, we can provide a copy for you. I think at one time we had one of the pockets in the hallway that was uh, dedicated to this. If if not, if that's empty, then we'll, uh, we'll print some more and get some more stocked on that. But this Harmony of the Gospels we've been using now for ever. <laughs> 431 lessons, at least as of this morning. And uh, the thing you want to keep in mind is that each section is separately numbered. So you've got the introduction to Jesus Christ with events 1, 2, and 3. And then you have the birth, infancy, and adolescence of Jesus and John the Baptist. And the numbering restarts at that point. So you've got numbers 1 through 17. Truths about John the Baptist, numbers 1 through 4. And originally when we were teaching this, we had um, a problem with the numberings and that that section was uh, lumped in with one of the neighboring sections, and so the numbers were a little bit off in the uh, early part of this series. We managed to fix it as we taught our way through those events. Beginning of Jesus' ministry, events 1 through 12. The Galilean ministry, this is the big one. Man, the Galilean ministry is the bulk of, of the three and a half years. I mean, it's almost three years out of the three and a half of what you're dealing with. And uh, events 1 through 56... Then the last Judean and Prean ministry, really the final six months of his life from the Feast of Tabernacles in uh, October of 32 A.D. all the way through the spring. 42 events there, <clears throat> ending with a plot to kill Lazarus. And then uh, where we've been in these recent classes, Jesus' final week of work at Jerusalem, starting with Palm Monday, the triumphal entry. Event number one, and all the events of the final week, the Passion Week, starting with uh, Monday, um, March 30th, 33 A.D., going all the way to Friday, April 3rd, 33 A.D. And this is where we are. Events 35 led to Golgotha. Event 36, the six events of the first six hour, or three hours on the cross. And then episode 37, the last three hours on the cross, the hours of darkness. Um, when we wrap this up, or then event 38, events attending Jesus' death. And really, we're almost done, aren't we? We've got 38, 39, and 40, the burial of Jesus, the tomb sealed, the women watch. And uh, that wraps up the, uh, the Passion Week. And then the resurrection ministry, the resurrection through the ascension. How long was it in between his resurrection and his ascension? Well, about 40 days of resurrection ministry. It was about 10 days shy of Pentecost which is uh, 50 days. So, 13 events there, starting with the women visiting the tomb and all the other uh, appearances taking you through the ascension in episode 13. So, given that, we are now on the fourth and final page there of our Harmony of the Gospels, <laughs> going all the way back to January of 2004. I mean, this is virtually 10 years now, right? Nine years probably 10 by the time, I mean, how long is it going to take us to do those 13 resurrection events and the, the final uh, three events here? Um, I don't know. We'll take a look and we'll, we'll see. But uh, definitely there's light at the end of the tunnel. And uh, after uh, a nine-year study, it's certainly kind of exciting to, to think that you're approaching the conclusion there. At which point do we just start over and <laughs> flip it back to the top of the chart and take it from the top, you know? And then what musicians say, all right, one more time, let's take it from the top. 
Anyway, Lord willing and rapture pending. It'd be kind of neat to finish the last of the ascension messages and then uh, close it in prayer and then hear the trumpet and get raptured out of this place. <laughs> well, then unbelievers can do whatever they want to do with the MP3 files that we're leaving behind. But, all right. Well, Matthew chapter 27. Let's get started with a word of prayer, asking the Father to bless our thinking and uh, return right back to the cross where we left it last week. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word. We rejoice, Father, over the privilege we have to assemble together once again this morning to, uh, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Father, this, uh, this event is the, the pivotal event of all human history, Father, that uh, by virtue of the first Adam, we all die, but by virtue of the second Adam, the last Adam, and his faithfulness, Father, to achieve all that you had for him to achieve. Father, uh, we can be made alive. And I thank you for the events of what he achieved on this cross. I pray that you open the eyes of our understanding, that we would understand the totality of everything that took place on that day uh, between him and you, Father. The uh, assignment you gave him, his faithfulness to execute it. Um, Father, just open our eyes to understand these things. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you've been with us so far in the process of this, you understand that uh, we started by... Uh, evaluating the journey from uh, the place of the scourging to the place of the of the crucifixion itself. The Roman soldiers led Jesus to Golgotha. Uh, we saw a progression from Gethsemane the night before to Gabatha that morning, the pavement, the judgment seat where he was pronounced guilty. Interestingly, he was he was pronounced innocent three separate times, and then finally, well, guilty anyway. Let's go crucify him. From Gethsemane to Gabatha to now Golgotha, the final G of the three G's in this process. Took a look at Simon of Cyrene and uh, some subpoints there. Uh, the two leading candidates for the Calvary location, the Golgotha location, and really both of them could be wrong. We don't know. It's not, I, I don't think it's even critical. I mean, who cares? We know, we know roughly, we know the city. We know that it was outside the city. He suffered outside the gate. We know that it was somewhere in a place uh, of, of maximum visibility with many passers-by. Well, uh, so it's thought to be along a roadway, but technically the word road doesn't appear here. We don't really know, but it was somewhere uh, in proximity. There's the uh, traditional location where uh, Constantine's mother plotted it, and they built the church, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And then there's the alternate location where Gordon thought it was, called Gordon's Calvary. And uh, one of those could be right, neither one could be right. Who knows? They can't both be right, because they're two different places, so... Uh, Whatever else happens there. Remember, Calvary is not in the Bible. It comes from the Latin, Calvarius, uh, in agreement with Golgotha, or the Greek, Kronion, the place of a skull. The parting message that Jesus had for the daughters of Jerusalem, quit weeping for me, weep for yourselves. Important message there because it brings in the uh, information from Hosea related to that. Point two was the six events of the first three hours on the cross. And here I think we're pretty well... Complete. Did we leave off with E or we leveled off with F? I forgot to check that. F, okay. Well, six things that happened. He refused to have his mind softened. He refused to drink the wine. Later on, he will actually drink the wine. He will say, I thirst. And why does he refuse early but accept late? Understand, well, late, the work was done. It was finished. And uh, before the work was done, he refused to have his mind softened. Uh, the garments were divided. The seated watch was event number three. Not a ton of development with that, but if you don't include it, then you, you can't get to the six. That the harmony of the gospel expects that you're going to have six events in the first three hours of the cross. The fourth event, Pontius Pilate ordered the posted inscription, printed in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. We looked at the four gospel records related to that, discussing, as we frequently do, why the, four, the differences in these four um, inscriptions is not a problem in harmonizing the record. Uh, that the, the most complete and comprehensive of them is John 19. We have no problem seeing abbreviated versions of them in the Matthew, Mark, and Luke account, and uh, and that's perfectly acceptable in our understanding of the inspiration of Scripture, and uh, in our understanding of 
uh, of these different things, being able to harmonize the divergent details in the separate gospel records. Point E, two robbers were crucified with him, these lestai, lestes singular, lestai plural, 3027 is the strongest concordance, and uh, definitely people that are getting what they deserve uh, and, and less than what they deserve, uh, given that they themselves are murderers, they themselves are worthy of death, uh, and the repentant thief testified to that, that we're getting what we deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then the message of the repentant thief there in Luke 23, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Moving off then with point F, the passers-by hurled the abuse. Passers-by hurled abuse. And so we read it here, Matthew 27, 39. Um, verse 38 says, At that time two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save Yourself. Now, is this what Jesus was talking about? Was this, are they misquoting him? All right, of course. They're twisting what he said. He was talking about the temple of his body. He was talking about that being destroyed. Uh, he also prophesied that, that the Jewish temple would be destroyed. He didn't say he was the one that was going to do it. So they're, they're twisting some of his claims and some of his messages, and that's not uncommon for what the adversary loves to do. Uh, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Come down from the cross. And all these temptations. And I ponder, I wonder, at what point did Satan finally figure out that it was a mistake to put him up there? <laughs> at what point did he finally cycle the information to realize, wait a minute, because we know for a fact that he did not know right at first. We know for a fact, the New Testament tells us, that it was the wisdom from above, the wisdom that none of the rulers of this age understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, so that's, that's God's commentary on the, on the episode. It's not my opinion. God's commentary said if they had understood, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So, uh, at some point, he did not understand it. The question is that, well, when did he catch on? Was it, was it, in the middle of the process, was it not until after the fact? Was it not until after the, the earthquake and the veil was rent in two? And then at some point, the rulers and authorities were disarmed. And as soon as their arms were stripped from them, they had to have known. So that's the very latest that they would have been clued in. But I suspect possibly earlier than that. I suspect that when, when they saw him go without a complaint, when they saw him go and, and be nailed, when they saw him it continue to intercede for the saints... Um, or for the, not the saints, but interceding for the, the villains they are crucifying him. Father, hold this not against them. They know not what they do. At some point, and does it lie behind this temptation of, come down from there, come down from there. If he loves you, he'll deliver you. Come down from there. Why the discouragement temp, uh, testing or temptation to get him to quit before it's done? To get him to come off that cross before the, the victory of Tetelestai? That's why my suspicion is that he was starting to get a bad feeling about this uh, partway through the process. And uh, really is the motivation for the come down from there, come down from there uh, approach. So pastors by hurled abuse. And we, we stop and say, really? Is this, I mean, at this point, what more do you want? Why the name calling? Why the slander? Why the abuse? I mean, at this point, haven't you done enough? You know, you've already scourged him. You've already nailed him to the cross, he's going to die, now you're going to add insult to injury? What's the point in that? What's the point in mocking? What's the point in these verbal attacks? Now, do you look at it that way? Do you look at it like it's kind of a step back or it's kind of a letdown? All right. Similar to what we observed with the mocking after the scourging. Why did the scourging come first and then the mocking with the, with the robe and the crown of thorns and the reed and the bowing down, the spitting in his face? Because we kind of think, and I'll just limit to myself if, you, if I'm just rambling and you don't think the same way I do, but my mind is that, that you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, okay? I mean, I grew up with that. My mom taught me that when I was three, right? And I think it's true. Um, although words do hurt, <laughs> okay? But doesn't it seem like the verbal abuse is less than the physical abuse. And then it would be an escalation then to scourge him. 
And that if you start with the scourging and then go to the mocking, that you've kind of got taken it in a backwards order. Same thing here. He's crucified for crying out loud. He is nailed to this cross. And you think verbal abuse? Why go there again? Okay? And here's where I start to wonder, wait a minute, maybe there is much more in view here than we understand. Maybe there are testings that take place, mental attitude testings that take place, that on top of the physical abuse become much more difficult to deal with. Maybe there's, there's realms of testing, and I believe Scripture bears this out, realms of testing that, okay, you can pass it under ideal circumstances, but what happens when you face it now and you're under such physical adversity? Now you're exhausted. Now you're tired. Jesus told his disciples this. You know, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And so after you've been scourged, after you've been crucified, now your body is in all this shock. What happens now if he responds carelessly to the mental attitude, uh, to the taunting, to the pride, to these other attacks that keep coming in? They don't stop. They don't stop. And I find that interesting. Does the father say, well, okay. You know, you know what's wrong, but come on. Given all you've gone through, you're exhausted, you're tired, I understand, sure. It's understandable that you would just totally blow your top and, and respond with anger and carnality. And, and uh, you know, those mocking uh, passers-by, you would just call fire down from heaven or something and blast them. You know, I understand that. Anyone would want to do that. Well, anyone but him. See, that's the point. He cannot go carnal even now. Or he fails to be the lamb without spot and blemish. So I think there's much more to this uh, verbal abuse than we sometimes might, might think about. Now, these passers-by included chief priests, scribes, and elders. The chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. And you think, come on, don't you at least have uh, some kind of maturity or dignity? In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him. Mocking him. And this is the way it works. Degeneracy always um, descends to the lowest common denominator. All right? Uh, when, when a mob mentality takes over, when there's a spirit of, of, of wickedness that's just sweeping over a group, look what happens. These elders, these scribes, these chief priests, oh, these dignified, you know, these are the fellows that love the chief seats and the, mark, and the respectful greetings in the marking places. These are the people that would never dream of allowing that sinful woman to touch them and all that stuff. And, and now what are they doing? They are lowering themselves to the, to the level of the mob. I mean, they're lowering themselves to the, to the taunting of the, of the crowds and, and so forth. And you just get caught up in these stupid things. All right. Anyway, it's, there's a, there is a spirit that works, that manipulates in a groupthink, in a mob setting. And it is powerful. It is very powerful. Uh, we see it in Scripture. We see it in, uh, in life. The robbers themselves join in the abuse, at least at first. One of them will soon have a change of heart. But early on, anyway, both are involved in the, uh, the insults. Matthew 27:44. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. That's both of the robbers. Both of the laestai. Until the, uh, the one thief then has his change of heart. So, Luke records how one of the robbers changed his thinking and trusted Christ. Luke 23, 39 through 43. Luke 23. And this is a, a neat story to turn to every time. You can view this. Now, this is a real story. This isn't a make-believe kind of parable or anything. This literally happened. And yet, this literal episode paints a picture that... that I've used before, you can use in, in evangelism, you can use this to say, look, here's the reality. You got the wicked thief, you got the repentant thief. What's the difference? <laughs> you know, they, as far as what both of them earned and deserved, it's identical. Both of them earned and deserved death. All sinners earn and deserve death. But one of them is going to reject the Christ, one of them is going to accept the Christ. You see, you see how the difference works there? 
And when it comes to what must I do to be saved, uh, if you ever encounter someone that tries to convince you that baptism is a necessary step, then, you know, look to this guy. Say, when, when did he get baptized? <laughs> All right? And uh, different things there. There's no baptism that's necessary. It's simple faith. So verses 39 through 43 of Luke uh, 23. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? So gospel hearing is preceded by God consciousness and a fear of the Lord that, that underlies the change of thinking. We indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. So he, you know, the first man said, are you not the Christ, in a dismissive, unbelieving kind of way. And, you know, you can't possibly be the Christ. You wouldn't be hanging on the cross like we are if you were really the Christ. And uh, the other man knew not only that he was the Christ, but he was the spotless Lamb of God, sinless and innocent. This man has done nothing wrong. And you're saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And I, and I, I don't know, the more I think about that use of Jesus there in that context shows a degree of familiarity that uh, is, uh, is worth considering here. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. And why is that comma important? You ever read Eat, Shoots, and Leaves? Okay, on punctuation, and it's, it's quite critical. If you hold a Roman Catholic theology, you've got to move your comma there and say, truly I say to you today, comma, you shall be with me in paradise. Because, uh, there's, you know, if you hold to a, a, a view of, uh, of uh, this guy can't go straight to paradise. Are you kidding me? Obviously, he's got to go to purgatory. He's going to a ton of things. He's a murderer. He's a thief. So how could this day he be in paradise? See, if purgatory has to come first. So you change it to, uh, I say to you this day, you will be with me in paradise. You see how punctuation matters? <laughs> and where you put that? No, it's not, I say to you this day. It's truly, truly, I say to you, this day you will be with me in paradise. This very day. All right. Which now takes us to the last three hours on the cross. Point three, the last three hours on the cross. He's halfway done. And what's he done so far? What has he done so far? What was he doing for those first three hours? Watching his garments distributed. Listening to the abuse. Praying for the abusers. Listening to these thieves. Encouraging the, the one believer now that gets saved on that other cross. Okay? He's done a, a fair number of things. He's kept his uh, attitude where it needs to be. That's one thing. But darkness is going to descend, and now he's got the real work to do. Okay? It wasn't just being nailed there that, that satisfied the Father, because he was nailed there for three hours and had not yet begun his priestly ministry, not in accepting the, the imputation of our sin, not in accepting the Father's wrath and judgment for that sin. This takes place in the three hours of darkness. Darkness upon all the land from noon to 3 p.m. We have the unanimous testimony of the synoptic accounts. Matthew 27:45, Mark 15:33, Luke 23:44 through 45. Now, was this just local uh, over Jerusalem? Was this over the entire <coughs> nation of Israel? Was this um, global? What was this? Well, you can infer what you choose to infer uh, based upon the statements here in the text. I don't know that the scriptures are really implying much more than what they explicitly say, but it does say over all the land. I believe that expression is found. Matthew 27:45. From the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Well, all what land? The land of what? All the land where? All the land. There's no additional detail that stipulates with more um, specificity exactly 
what uh, you're looking at there. So it's left general upon all the land. You take it in context to be the land there where he is. The, the locality of, of where that's taking place. And I think it doesn't just say upon all the city. It says upon all the land. So I view it to be a much larger scope than, uh, than simply the city of Jerusalem. It was undoubtedly regional, my thought is anyway. If you think of the land as a technical term, then it's the, the river to the rivers. The, it's the land grant. It's the property that was be bequeathed upon Abraham. could be thought of as the land. And uh, significance when the, the patriarchs were in the land or out of the land. In any event, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Um, pondering, if it, was, if it was global, then you would expect there would be records in, you know, among the Romans and other things like that. Uh, that's why I think it was regional. We don't have other, uh, attestation of this in secular sources related to um, the, uh, the, the, in the Mishnah or the Talmud. The, the rabbis certainly were going to write about how darkness fell upon the, the land from noon to three o'clock. They, they write about the death of Christ, but they'd write about it as being justified, as being legitimate, about you know, putting, a, putting a man to death for his, uh, his blasphemy and uh, for being a false Christ, as it were. So, uh, but none of them actually write about the hours of darkness outside the, uh, the scripture record, at least not that I found. If you come across one, let me know. Uh, but from the sixth hour until the ninth hour. Now, this would then be a, uh, yes? Oh, okay. Let me know. Um, using the Roman method of tracking time, then we, we accept this as noon to 3 p.m. There is some question about the hours that are mentioned in the Gospel of John earlier during the trials of, of Jesus before Pilate. But here in the crucifixion account, there's really no discrepancy and there's no uh, there's no even controversy related to the sixth hour and the ninth hour. So the testimony we have in all three of these accounts. Let me pick up Mark 15:33. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. In your footnotes, say footnote one says noon, footnote two says 3 p.m., and uh, those are accurate footnotes for how we understand the Roman time divisions. In the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. And, wow, where'd those hours go? <laughs> Man, do you see how quick that went from verse 33 to verse 34? When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And then, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Eloi, Eloi, Lamasabachthani. Wow, where did those three hours go? I want more. Give me more detail. Tell me, you know, squeeze some verses in there between 33 and 34. I want to know. It's like the passage in Revelation 20 where you have thousand years, thousand years, thousand years, thousand years. It's used all through those verses. And then the very next verse says, when the thousand years were complete, Satan was released for a short time. Like, wow, where did those thousand years go? <laughs> I mean, just like that. Same thing. Where did these three hours go? What are the events during those three hours? Well, it was dark. Okay. What happened in that darkness? These passages are not detailing that. But we're going to glean from the other passages, the prophetic passages, exactly what was taking place between the Father and the Son. Why is it that he can declare it is finished? What was he doing to finish it? And why did he feel abandoned from the Father and the Holy Spirit? And I accept that. I'm not the first to invent that or make that up. And when he says, my God, my God, here's one member of Trinity speaking to the other two. <laughs> Why hast thou forsaken me? And uh, obviously the Father and the Holy Spirit are no longer in fellowship with the Son at this point as Jesus Christ accepts the judgment of separation from, in, in the aspect of spiritual death, as separation from God. Luke 23, verses 44 and 45a. Whoops. It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness fell over the whole land. There's the language again, over the whole land, until... The ninth hour, because the sun was obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed 
his last. So what happened during those hours of darkness? All right. Darkness upon all the land from noon to 3 p.m. Um, I understand that there is, I think this is a darkness that relates to the light from uh, day one of Genesis. There is a light when God says, let there be light. And that's not the sun, moon, and stars, which doesn't show up till day four. God says, let there be light, that original light on day one of the creation week. I believe that God darkened that here in the judgment upon his son. And uh, reflected, of course, with the inability to see through that. Point B, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This is Jesus' Psalm 22 recitation. My opinion, I'm clear to tell you it's my opinion. Jesus' Psalm 22 recitation was the most powerful gospel message ever preached. And I'm convinced of that. There's never been a pulpit like the cross. Are you familiar with that song? Um... My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And does he stop with verse 1 of Psalm 22? Or does he continue, either verbally or you know, mentally, does he continue working his way through the message of Psalm 22? Jesus' Psalm 22 recitation was the most powerful gospel message ever preached, as it highlighted David's prophetic message for more than 1,000 years before as it highlighted David's prophetic message from more than 1,000 years before. We discussed this last week. When David wrote Psalm 22, what possible conceivable experience did he have that, that impelled him to write what he wrote? He was never crucified. His hands and feet were never pierced. His garments were never gambled for. Uh, the events that he saw, he wrote about, but he never experienced physically. He never experienced what he saw and what he wrote about. Not in the real world or in real life. He may have done so in vision, may have done so in a spiritual experience. And if, in fact, his journey was similar to Ezekiel's journey, that means that he was taken out of his body, brought forward in time, and uh, given a viewpoint to be able to look through Jesus' eyes while Jesus hung on that cross. Again, point B. Jesus' Psalm 22 recitation was the most powerful gospel message ever preached as it highlighted David's prophetic message from more than 1,000 years before. The ignorant crowds were oblivious to what he was saying. We'll talk about that here next because He's citing Psalm 22 from the Hebrew. Eli is my God. Remember your vocabulary on the angels? The L vocabulary that we looked at? Put the I-Y on it and you've got the my prefix, my God. Eli is my God. I think this verse is one of the strongest testimonies we have anywhere that shows us how in... Uh, in uh, his day, Hebrew was largely lost among the population. In his day, Aramaic was the spoken tongue. It was the language of the home. It was the language of the family. It was the spoken language, trade language in the Near East. And, uh, and that biblical Hebrew was limited to the scribes and the Pharisees and those that studied the sacred text, but it was, it was in great disuse among the, uh, you know, on a daily basis among families and in the general population. Uh, I think it's very clear that when he's saying Eli, Eli, Lama Sabachthani, he's, he's not, if they were native Hebrew speakers, then they would not have ever confused Eli with the name of Elijah. And they began saying, this man is calling for Elijah. The only reason for their confusion then is if they are native Aramaic speakers, where it's a close cognate language, but not uh, mutually intelligent, uh, intelligible in, in a lot of ways. And uh, so he's saying, Eli, Eli, my God, my God. But they're hearing Elijah, Elijah. You know, with the expectation that Elijah has to come before the, uh, before the coming day of the Lord. Elijah has to come before the kingdom can be manifest on this earth. And so here's their clueless idea that, ooh, maybe Elijah is going to show up and rescue him. Maybe Elijah shows up and gets him off that cross and then they bring in the kingdom kind of a thing. Well, they're dead wrong. He's not even calling for Elijah. He's calling, my God, my God. 
And I find this interesting as well. All right, Psalm 22, let's, let's look back there. Um, we looked at it a week ago, and I don't think you can look at it too many times to see the recognition that it's not a pleasant experience, but he knows it's going to accomplish something. He has his focus fixed on what this is going to produce, what is coming up. It's not just, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's where the citation in, the, in, in Matthew and Mark and Luke, uh, that's where the, or Matthew and Mark anyway, that's where the citation concludes. Um, but I don't suspect that, that Jesus stopped in his recitation there. Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I have no rest. Now, when David was going through this experience, he may have had a very lengthy time of this, and his prayers may have gone day and night for who knows how long. But for Jesus, his day and night came in the process of six hours. Three hours of praying in day and three hours of praying in night. And uh, he had the, the day-by-night prayers in, uh, in, these, in this uh, six-hour span. Yet you are holy, O you who are enthroned upon the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were delivered. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. So while he's on the cross, he's in prayer, and he has every expectation that he's not there because God's unfair. God is holy. You are holy. And all the slander coming at him saying, well, if he delights in you, he would get you off that cross. Or God's unfair. Why is God doing that to you if he delights in you? And, and Jesus does not allow himself to ever question God's holiness, to ever question God's righteousness or the fairness of why he's on that cross. But I'm a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. And I love this. To me, this is, this is brilliant. This is, you know, the father, and prophetically, of course, anticipates, knows all this mocking is going to take place. And so a thousand years before it happens, the Holy Spirit inspires David to write these words in the, in the Scriptures. And so while Jesus is on the cross experiencing the wagging heads and the mocking scorn and all of this, he has Scripture that he can quote. He has scripture that he can quote while he watches it played out in front of his eyes. And they're taunting him. And, and they're quoting scripture too, if, if, they, if they knew it, which they don't. All right. I find that interesting. Yet, you are he who brought me forth from the womb. Okay. And uh, for the case of God the Son, who entered into the womb in, in a very unique way, it's an interesting perspective. You made me trust when upon my mother's breast. Upon you I was cast from birth. You have been my God from my mother's womb. You know, you understand that. He was a believer in the womb. <laughs> okay? He's the only human being to ever have that. John the Baptist was spirit and dwelled while in the womb, but he was not a believer at that point. Um, differences there. All right. You'll notice... Um, you get down, verse 19, But you, O Lord, be not far off. What, what a, what a, what a follow-up to, Why have you forsaken me? Be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul from the sword. So in other words, you're far off now, but you're not going to stay far off. There will come a time when once again we will be back in proximity. Deliver my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth. Notice now, from the horns of the wild oxen, you answer me. There is an answer to this prayer. And when the answer is manifest, the answer is not manifest immediately. It's not manifest in the first three hours. It's not manifest during the second three hours. Not until all six hours are done. The answer will come and then... Jesus has an expected testimony that he is looking forward to answering, to, to delivering. I will tell of your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. 
Because God will be faithful through the whole process. When we're done here, I will praise you. It's like the the faith that Abraham had when he tells the servants, my son and I are going up on this mountain, and when we come back... Remember? There was no question in his mind that we're going up and we're coming back. You know, even my son that I'm going up there to kill. We are coming back. And that faith that Abraham had to tell his servants that. Same thing here. When this is done, I will tell of your name to my brethren. Now, how's a dead guy going to do that? Well, it's a dead guy who expects to not stay a dead guy. It's a dead guy that knows that he's going to lay down his life and he's going to take it back up again. It's a dead guy that knows that on the third day he's going to rise again. And that he's going to have a testimony not only to his brethren, but also in the heavenly places, in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. And he's going to have resurrection ministry on earth to the apostles, and then he's going to have an ascension ministry to the assembly, proclaimed by the angels. And there's uh, the heavenly work that takes place when he cleanses that heavenly temple. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. The testimony is that prayers get answered even if we have to wait a while in time for the the, the answer to come. From you comes my praise in the great assembly. I shall pay my vows before those who fear him. What vows does the Son have to pay before the Father? And full witness testimony of those who fear him. The afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will worship before you. You see, the fullness of time is possible because Jesus Christ was faithful at Calvary. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will bow before him. Even he who cannot keep his soul alive. They will bow before him because he laid down his soul. He poured out his soul on their behalf. Even the ones that reject him. He still died for them. Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They will come and will declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has performed it. The thousand generations, the citizens of those that will be his children in the new heavens and new earth in the dispensation of the fullness of time. Folks that, uh, technically speaking, are not redeemed the way you and I are redeemed because... We get saved. They're going to be born without sin for those thousand generations. There is no more sin, no more death, no more sickness, no more pain. These first things have passed away. All right, people who will be born that he has performed it. Sour wine, third event. After the darkness is complete, we look at the sour wine. It's mentioned in Matthew 27:48, mentioned in Mark 15:36. Uh, you get a fuller description in John 19, John 19 verses 28 and 29. The Sarawan also fulfilled Scripture. Psalm 22:15 and Psalm 69:21. Sarawan. Now remember, he refused the wine earlier. He had just a short taste. He recognized what it was, and he wouldn't take it. He refused the wine earlier, but now he asked for it. Now he says, I thirst. John 19, verses 28 and 29. We'll grab this one. Try to spread these out. Also Matthew 27, 48, Mark 15, 36. But in John 19, we read, after this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, knowing that all things had already been accomplished. So there's no more reason why he has to turn down the wine. And there's biblical reason why he ought to go ahead and at least drink some because of the uh, prophecies in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69. So knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the Scripture said, I thirst. 
or I am thirsty. I am thirsty. Okay. There's another gospel song. You familiar with that one? <laughs> it's called I Thirst. Oh, man. That one will get you. You think, here's the creator of the universe. The God who made the oceans says, I thirst. <laughs> wow. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop. Why is that significant? And brought it to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. die." He bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, uh, we have more scripture being fulfilled related to these things. Psalm 22:15, Psalm 69:21, And then we've got to look at Passover one more time and understand Christ our Passover. Why is hyssop significant? Psalm 22:15. We were just here, weren't we? Did I read verse 15? I don't think I did. I think we skipped over that when I said, get on down the... Yeah. My strength is dried up like a pot's herd. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. We recognize, okay, there's a thirst in that. And you lay me in the dust of death. Psalm 69, 21. I used to try to figure out, well, what, what causes your tongue to cleave? You know, obviously, thirst is one huge item. And then when you're a teenage boy, it's when... Ever there's a pretty girl around. <laughs> All of a sudden you just can't see anything. Somebody, there, there's actually a scientific study where they were measuring brain waves or something and found that, that men are affected in the presence of pretty women. I thought they needed a study to do, I mean, how many millions do they spend on that, you know? Pay me for some of these studies. I can tell them what they want. Psalm 69:21. They gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. Wow. When did that happen in David's life? Okay. The different aspects of what happens here. Reproach has broken my heart, and I am so sick. I looked for sympathy, but there was none. For comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. There's quite a bit here in Psalm 69 that you'll notice is messianic. It is uh, prophetic, looking forward to the coming of Christ. Um, they have plotted against him. May their table before them become a snare. When they are in peace, may it become a trap. Anyway, different things here. Psalm 69 is almost as powerful as Psalm 22 in different ways. John's mention of hyssop is also remarkable in light of the Passover event. You know what happened at Passover? Exodus 12:22. Exodus 12:22. What happened at Passover? Yeah, it was the night that Israel was delivered out of Egypt. That's right. It's the night that the father killed the firstborn son. And it's the night in which the firstborn son could be rescued or redeemed if a substitute took its place. And so you slay the Passover lamb and you apply the blood then the firstborn son would be spared. And so there's a lot of pictures here related to the uh, sacrifice of, of the Christ. That's interesting. Of course, 1 Corinthians says Christ, our Passover. We understand that he's the fulfillment of what this typology is pointing to. Uh, but Exodus 12, 21 Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and take for yourselves lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. And, it doesn't stop there, you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. So many, many times I've taught that it's not just the death of the lamb that's significant, but the blood has to be applied. That, that you can kill the lamb and eat it and your firstborn is still going to die unless the blood has been applied to the, to the doorpost and the lintel, right? And, and clearly there's a picture for that because the value for the cross is what it is, but that value is not applied until by faith the person who trusts in Christ for eternal life. See, so the slaying of the animal doesn't finish the, the total picture. 
It's not until the blood is applied. That's why you can teach that the death of Christ on the cross, sometimes I think Calvinists argue about this, and, and there's no need to. There's no need to argue about this. Because the, the blood applied, or the blood, the, the death of the Lamb, think of Jesus Christ on the cross, 1 John 2, for our sins and the sins of the whole world. But the value then is not applied until the blood is then smeared to the doorpost and to the lintel. And that's why, you know, some people really struggle. They say, well, if he died for everybody, then everybody would be saved. No. He died for everybody in the, the blood that was shed, but it wasn't applied until when? Until the believer comes by faith and believes in Christ for eternal life. That's right. So you have two halves of this picture, the death of the lamb and the application of the blood. I've taught this hundreds of times, but the one thing I've never highlighted is the fact, why was it a hyssop branch used for the smearing of the, of the blood? Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood, which is in the basin. Well, why? Why do you have to use hyssop? To apply, to dip it in the blood and to apply it on the, why hyssop? Applying it on the uh, lintel and the two doorposts. Can I just use a rag or something? Can I just use a, a paintbrush or a, why hyssop? Well, nothing in Exodus tells you why. Nothing in Exodus tells you why. But you do note in John 19 that hyssop was the branch that they used when they lifted that sponge to, uh, for the Lord to drink that wine. Oh, wow, isn't that amazing? Interesting. Having successfully poured out his soul, Jesus can now yield up his spirit. Having successfully poured out his soul, Jesus can now yield up his spirit. Oftentimes, of course, soul and spirit are, are two sides of the same coin. Soul and spirit are used often interchangeably. Soul and spirit are often interrelated in the sense that both of them together make up the inner man. The outer man is the body. The inner man is the soul and spirit. Sometimes it's not even appropriate to distinguish between soul and spirit. They're, they're the inner man. They're the one and the same when it comes down to it. The soul, though, is the immaterial part of us that interfaces with the physical universe. The spirit is the immaterial part of us that interfaces with God. Be that as it may, if you're a believer, you have a living human spirit. But we are told in Isaiah 53 that he poured out his soul. He poured out his nephesh. That part of what he did on the cross was to offer himself as the sacrifice. His soul as the sacrifice. Isaiah 53, verse 10 and verse 12. Isaiah 53, verse 10 and verse 12. Now, there are verses that talk about the sacrifice of his body, and that is very true. His body will die. His body will go into the grave. His body will be restored to life in three days. But his soul was restored to life in three hours. All right? Because he took up his soul again. He took up his life again while he was still physically alive on the cross. He says, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. That was a living human spirit. He offers up that prayer in faith as a living human spirit. Understand, how long did his spiritual death last? I believe it lasted during the time of darkness. And then when he took his life back up again, the darkness was lifted. He was not still spiritually dead when he said, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Why would he give a dead spirit to the Father's hands? Why would he have the... He has to be spiritually alive again to have the capacity to know it is finished. To tell us die. It is finished. So... The physical death, the offering of his body, the breaking of his body through the scourging and the crucifixion and all of that fulfilled the, the pictures and the typology of the, the death of the lambs. But those weren't the only sacrifices that had typology. There were also drink offerings. And there were offerings that were poured out. Why were there offerings that were poured out? Why was some of the blood poured out and not applied to the, to the veil? What does the pouring out speak of? Well, here's Jesus with a pouring out. And it's a pouring out of his soul, we're told. 
So, Isaiah 53.10, The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. And this is what he described in Gethsemane the night before, that his soul was deeply troubled to the point of death. And he was crushed in Gethsemane. And he was faithful and obedient in Gethsemane. And he passed that test and he moved on. If he would render himself as a guilt offering. If he would render his soul. His soul. Nefesh. It's translated as himself, but literally it's his nefesh. That is his guilt offering. And what's the difference between a burnt offering and a guilt offering and a trespass offering and a peace offering? You understand the five offerings in the first five chapters of Leviticus. Here is a guilt offering. And so which one of these is serves the picture of redemption? If the whole burnt offering is the picture of redemption, then what's the guilt offering? What's the sin offering? What's the trespass offering? What's the peace offering? Okay? And I'll be the first to tell you, if you don't review Leviticus every so often, you get rusty on it. You get rusty on it. I admit that. I won't be, I won't be so... I think it's dangerous to, to say there's a passage of the Bible you don't like. So I don't dislike Leviticus, but it doesn't particularly thrill me to, to, to study it and teach it and, and so forth. We're not Levitical. Those are pictures and shadows. We're into the reality. We're church-age saints. In any event. If he would render his soul a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. And the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, the anguish of his nefesh, Why is this necessary? Could he not have been the Redeemer without the suffering? No, that's right. It's exactly right. Nothing that God does is unnecessary. Nothing the Father does is unnecessary. Nothing the Son does in obedience to the Father is unnecessary. The suffering was necessary. If he did not learn through the things which he suffered, then he was not suited to, And the Father would not have been satisfied. But as it is, as a result of the anguish of his soul, he, God the Father, will see it and be satisfied. Apart from that anguish, God the Father would not be propitiated, satisfied by the work of Jesus Christ. Why? By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many. By his knowledge. Now, look, the poetry of verse 11 links the anguish of his soul with, by his knowledge there, the Father will be satisfied and the servant will justify. Those are the parallels of verse 11. And this is doctrinally what we understand in the book of Hebrews. He learned obedience. He learned through the things which he suffered. The Father was well pleased to perfect the author of our salvation with this suffering. This is what perfected him. Until he went through the suffering, he was not suited to justify us. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He has to have that knowledge. And until he has that knowledge, that experiential knowledge, he has to embrace that anguish of soul to completely know Not just with omniscient knowledge of knowing, but with the experiential knowledge that the Son of Man now knows the totality of what's expected of Him to bear the Father's wrath. And until He fully knows that, the Father will not be satisfied. Alright? Something to think about. I know we taught it in Gethsemane. We're teaching it again here. Maybe by the third or fourth time we go through it, it's going to sink in. Okay? But he is, it requires that knowledge. It requires that anguish. It is a result, as a result of the anguish of his soul. Without it, there is no propitiation. The Father would not be satisfied without it. See, 1 John 2.2 2 tells us that he is the propitiation for our sins, but it doesn't say why. Isaiah, 10, Isaiah 53 tells us why. Why is he satisfied? 
Why is he satisfied? So having successfully poured out his soul, Jesus can now yield up his spirit. And he says it is finished. There's nothing left to do but now yield up the spirit and cause the body to go through the physical death. And then in three days he'll arise victorious from that pattern as well. So we'll come back to this next week and deal with point four, the uh, events attending Jesus' death. Thank you, Father, for your faithfulness, for your mercy, love, and grace. Thank you that your Son had full knowledge, completely aware of every expectation you had for him in those hours of darkness, and that he willing, willingly accepted it, no matter the, the sorrow, no matter the crushed soul, no matter the shame. He fully accepted it, Father. He was man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And he embraced every last bit of it, Father, that he might be the justifier. Thank you for his obedience. Thank you for your satisfaction. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.